Well, good evening, and uh, welcome. Thanks for coming along uh, tonight to praise God's name and listen to His Word. Now, we're going to read um, from uh, the book of Revelation, the last book of our Bible. And we're going to, in God's will, look through this in the coming weeks and months as well. And so tonight we're going to read the first eight verses together. So Revelation uh, chapter 1, the first eight verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you, and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Uh, For the reading of God's words. You know, what is the future for this world? How should we prepare for the future? Well, that's questions that are on many people's mind, isn't it? Uh, And you can think of many answers that uh, are given. Uh, Answers looking maybe at the short term, the medium term, answers that are speculative. But God has provided all that we must know, all that we must know, um, with regard to the future. There are other things we can know, and it's maybe good to know as well, but all that he wants to say that we must know, the essential things that we must know, his word contains for each and every one of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this book we're about to study, and what we're about even to think of tonight, just in the very short section at the start, that has great breadth and depth of truth. That yes, will inform us, will inform us, will educate us, we trust. But should encourage us, should comfort us, should challenge us, and should convict every one of us. You know, it's essential, I would submit, that as we go through this book, as in any other book, any other scripture we read, that it doesn't just 
educate us, i.e. give us a greater understanding, to touch our heads, to touch our minds. That's essential, of course, that we must be informed. But beyond that, touching our heads and touching our minds, you know, that it actually touches our emotions. That as a result of reading the Word of God, and particularly as we're thinking tonight, reading this Word tonight, that it not only just educates, but it gives us a greater love for Him. That it gives all of us, as we go through this Word, a greater love for God, a greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And also then it touches our wills, our obedience. So it is our hearts, our minds, and our hands, if you like, impacted by the very word of God. Now that's true for every book of the Bible, every time we pick up the Bible and read it, that is what we should desire, not just to have information in our minds. That is important, that is important, because we want our emotions to be impacted by what is true, not that which is false. And so we'll come to this book, we'll come to this section tonight, and that is what we desire. And I think this this passage before us tonight really brings before us, highlights before us, who is the great theme of this book, and who is the great theme of Scripture. And of course that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this section tonight is packed for us. I believe it is a book that does speak predominantly a lot about the future. About the future, okay. So you can probably guess from those introductory remarks that I'm not a person who uh, is anyway what is called a preterist. Some of you think a whatist, uh, and that's fine. Some of you have learnt that word, so that's why I'm speaking of, of that to you. A preterist or preterism comes from the, a Latin term uh, meaning past, and there are people who believe all biblical prophecy what we would call prophecy, has already happened. All of it has happened already. That would be sort of full-blown preterism, if you like. But there are those, there are good and godly people, good and godly people, I repeat again, who think, um, who would say that a lot of the prophecies in perhaps Daniel, Matthew 24, and in the book of Revelation have been already fulfilled. Okay, they have already been fulfilled, much of it being fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. We're all from, many of us are familiar with that. The temple was destroyed, and so it was. And the Lord Jesus did speak about that. But he spoke about a trouble in those days, which the world had never seen, nor ever will see. Now, as much as the trouble was bad in AD 70 in Jerusalem... I think every Jewish historian would look and say that the Holocaust was far worse than that. And so those events uh, weren't fulfilled, which um, are spoken in Matthew 24 and in fact Mark 13, at the destruction of the temple, I would submit to you. Now, of course... Sometimes we, you know, we look to a book of the Bible and we'll pass over when it was written. I mean, for most of us, that's not interesting, is it? When was it written? Well, we're not bothered. Well, maybe I'm speaking just for just a few of us. But I think most of us aren't too bothered when it was written. We know it's in the Bible, so let's read it. But this is relatively important, I would suggest to you, because if... It comes to pass, if we had a belief, okay, and you might, or you might have been exposed to this, that much of this was fulfilled at the destruction of the temple in AD 70, it would necessitate, of course, that the book must have been written before AD 70. That's clear? Okay, so that was the case. But, 
it would seem to me that that is not the case. And it seemed early, that some of the early church didn't think that either. I found this quote. This was from a man in the second century. His name was Iranius. And he wrote about the Antichrist. We'll think about him in latter chapters. And he gave some very good wisdom here. He says, uh, If it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, so obviously in the second century there were some people sort of thinking who is the Antichrist even then and trying to name him, and that's happened through the years. He said this, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic, apocalyptic vision. That is the book of Revelation. For that was seen no very long, long time since, but almost in our day towards the end of Domitian's reign. And you think, now what's, what's that about? Well, what he is saying in the second century is John r- wrote down this apple. apple apocalyptic vision the book of revelation at the end of the reign of Domitian now it's historical fact that he reigned from 80 to 96 AD so the end of his time is around 90 to 96 so second century this man a church father writes that this book was written towards the end of the first century not before 70 AD so thus One of the proofs I would say, and there's many more in my opinion, that says this does not speak about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, all that to say, there's good and godly people who think otherwise. Um, And like all things, we can strongly disagree. I would. Uh, But we can respectfully and graciously disagree as well. There's nothing wrong in holding a strong opinion if you believe that's what the Bible is taught. There's nothing wrong in that whatsoever. You don't need to apologise for, for being strong in what we believe. As many people believe in a different mode of baptism to what I believe. But I'd be convinced and strong about it. And we strictly and graciously disagree. That's how Christians should be. Now, Having said that, as a little bit of introduction about the date and what I think the main scoop of this is, undoubtedly Undoubtedly, and I don't think anyone's going to argue on this one, the great theme of this book is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, of course, the great theme of Scripture. He said to Moses, you know, the Scriptures speak of me. And in this we see, as we'll see quite quickly, he is the great theme of this book. He is the great theme of this passage tonight. We're going to look at it in three short sections. The blessing of Christ, the blessing that comes from Christ. That's the first three verses, the blessing that comes from Christ. As a result, uh, the praise, verses 4 to 6, that goes to Christ, the praise that goes to Christ, and then, if you like, the promise that comes from him. So it's the blessing that comes from him, the praise that goes up, and the promise then that comes from him. So let's have a look at that. The very first words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the word revelation is a translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. Apocalypse. Now in modern uh, speaking, how we speak now, if you had asked me many, many years ago, what's apocalypse? And probably if you asked your friends at work, what does the word apocalypse conjure up in your mind? They will probably, I'd imagine if they say anything, say catastrophe, destruction, disaster. 
uh, back before I was a Christian there was a film I know many of you wouldn't have watched it you wouldn't have been allowed to perhaps uh, it's called Apocalypse Now and it was a sort of big war movie about huge disaster and judgment and all sorts of things raining down from one people to another but actually the word apocalypse or revelation as it's translated um, means a disclosure a revealing a manifestation if we like in you know, vernacular to lift the lid off something and so what we have here is a disclosure of Jesus Christ now it would be true that he is the one who gives it we'll think about that but I don't think that's the emphasis here it is a disclosure about him it is a manifestation, it is lifting the lid to give us more detail, to give us more information about our Lord Jesus Christ, about what the future uh, he has for this world and his coming into this world. So we are thinking tonight, we are going to think through the whole of this as we look through this book, the Lord Jesus, person, the Lord Jesus Christ is the person who is revealed by the book. He is the person who is revealed on the pages as we go through it. If we get stuck as we go through here, and it is good to think about some things, if we see, you know, we'll see the Antichrist, the false beast, and all these judgments. But if we get hooked more on that than seeing Jesus Christ, we've probably, well, not probably, definitely missed the main point of the book. That's not to say we shouldn't have a look at those things and investigate them, but we can get things a bit out of order. In fact, history shows us that we can get things a lot out of order. So let's keep the main things at the top and the minor things below. Not to say the minor things aren't important, I'm not saying that one little bit, but we see quite quickly the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour, our Saviour. He, he is not gone. The world think they have got rid of him, perhaps, but he is not, they is not finished with this world and this world will see Jesus Christ. He is coming. That is the great theme of this book. You know, chapter 1, we see John sees a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll think about that next week. As we go to chapters 2 and 3, we'll think of the Lord Jesus' verdict on the churches in Asia at that time. And there's lessons that apply for us. He, he sees us. He sees us as an assembly. And we can then think, what would he say about the assembly at Fernalee? Because there's lessons we can learn. His verdict is the only verdict that matters. Jesus Christ's verdict on the, church, on the churches. Chapter 5, he, is the, he stands as the lamb slain, worthy to take the title deeds of the earth. In those terrible chapters that really sometimes we don't really like, if we're honest, in you know, 6 through to 16, the seal judgments and all those things. You know, and there's details there that sort of make us at best nervous, don't they, and sort of horrify us. But friends, friends, who is the one who opens the seals? Well, chapter 6, uh, you'll see the first verse, it is the Lamb. The Lamb opens the seals. This is his judgment upon this world. And you can roll through through 6 to 16 and see it a number of times. You know, he, he, that, is him, that is his judgment on us. So we need to get a full picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, in our minds to be informed concerning him. You know, we see uh, the, the Lamb in chapter 14. He's with the 144,000. We might get a bit hooked on who are they. Uh, and that's all kind of fine. But it is the Lamb who is there with them. 
We see the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb and the rider on the white horse. You know, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the great theme. In in chapter 20 we'll, we'll see the reign of Christ for a thousand years. The reign of Christ for a thousand years is given in chapter 20. New heaven and new earth, chapter 21, the Lamb is worshipped. And the last chapter of our Bible, are the last recorded words of earthly of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they come with a great promise, surely I am coming soon. And so throughout the, this whole book, the great theme, the great object of this book is to reveal Christ to us and we'll think about that there is a blessing for all of us as we'll think in a minute that comes through reading this book to understand it and to keep and keep it in our minds that will draw us out we trust in a greater love and a greater obedience for the Lord Jesus Christ so the revelation of Jesus Christ as we see in verse 1 which God gave him so God, the Father, gives the Son this revelation. That's not a new, he wasn't being given new information, I don't think, but it was a confirmation of God's plans for this world and his beloved Son. The one who was crucified, the one who is ascended, and now what is the future? And we have this revealed open for us. The Lord Jesus Christ wasn't receiving new information, but it's a confirmation. And God gives it to him, why? We see in verse 1, to show to his servants. And that includes all of us who are believers in Christ. All the believers through the centuries who can look and to hear these words or to read these words, it is given a disclosure of Christ that we might understand we are his servants and we can more fully understand the ultimate victory of the Lamb and God's plans for this world system. Now, as we think about that, of course, so this is what God gave Jesus Christ and he was going to show it to his servants and then we read it's the things that must soon take place. Now, of course, when we think soon... We then think, well, hang on, this is 2,000-odd years ago. You know, sometimes uh, I might be asked to do a job at home and say, I'll do it soon, okay? And I do wait a little while at times, you know? I sort of think, well, 2,000 years is really, you know, that's a long way, isn't it? That's how we think, don't we, really? Um, There's things I've promised to do at home in, well, probably a couple of years, you know, and think, well, he's not done them yet, you know, what's happening? You know? So you can ask Grace about that later. But I would submit to you, this soon is in the timing of God. This soon is in the timing of God. I want to read to you, again, not to try and be onerous, but to illustrate, um, the first known Greek commentary on the book of Revelation. I'm not going to read it in Greek, obviously. Uh, it, was from, it was from the 500 years after Christ was born. So from the 6th century. Okay, This is from the 6th century, a man called Eucanemius. And he wrote this. Although those events which will take place have not yet occurred, so there again he said they haven't occurred, and this is in uh, the 6th century, even though a considerable span of time has passed, only 500 years then, more than 500 years since the words were spoken, because to the eyes of the eternal and endless gods, 
endless God, all ages are regarded as nothing in his sight. For as the prophet says, a thousand years in your sight, O Lord, are as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Psalm 90, verse 4. Now that was written in the 6th century, you know, so they're thinking then, soon? Is it soon? Doesn't seem soon. Well, he says, you know, God is outside of time. God is eternal. And the thousand years is just as a watch in the night. And so when we read soon take place, we don't have to think that these things happen, were going to happen as what we might think of as soon. In fact, when we turn, and you can, if you like, turn to the very last chapter of the Bible, um, chapter 22, and... Um, in verse 6, there's almost a repetition of what we read in chapter 1. And you've got to remember, I'm sure you will, that in chapter 21 we have the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the river of life. And what does it say in verse 6? And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his, angels, sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place you see so even they're thinking the new heaven and the new earth that must soon take place this is in God's timetable so we don't get upset when we read soon and think oh it's not happened yet it must be wrong or I've got to find some other interpretation for this book and so one day with the Lord is as a thousand years a thousand years as one day so what we see then so this was given the revelation concerning himself by God to show his servants. And how did the Lord Jesus Christ make this known? Verse 1, in the middle, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So an angel, as we will see, brought the message of the Lord's first coming. We remember that, don't we? A saviour has been born in Bethlehem. And an angel brings the message about his second coming as well. Remember, John is writing this after all he has seen. He has seen all this already. You know, and he said, well, an angel told me these things, and I have borne witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And repeatedly, what we see in the book of Revelation is John saying, I saw, I saw, I saw. Um, so you can look that for yourself and think, you know, John is a witness to all of these things. You know, he is writing after the events that he saw, okay, it's been revealed to him. And this would have been a huge encouragement for John. What a huge comfort, as it should be for you. As we read these words, as we go through... You know, we look at this world, and we might look around, we might have cause if we look at the world for discouragement, and we might look at ourselves and think, oh, I wonder what is going on. But the great theme is Jesus Christ, and he is coming. You know, John, as we'll think next week, I'm not going to say too much about it, but John was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. And there were salt mines, I understand, on the Isle of Patmos. He was just um, put there as like a prison for him, pretty much on his own for the word of God. We'll think about that next week. But he sees this and he says, this is the future. This is the promise of God, the revealing of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I have seen that and I bear witness to all that those things have taken place you know john actually gives us a little key 
to understand the book of Revelation. Look at verse 19, if you could, of chapter 1. Verse 19. What he is told to do. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So there's three things there, isn't there? As John is a witness, he's going to write about the things he has seen. Then he's going to write about the things that they are, and I'll submit to you that's the situation in the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, as we have them. And then the things that are to take place, the future. And so John has recorded that, that you and I, well, firstly the original listeners, but now for you and I, that we might be blessed. And there's a unique blessing. Um, There's always a blessing to read in God's word, of course. But this book contains a blessing at the start and a blessing at the end. You'll have noticed that, won't you? In chapter 3, sorry, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So friends, what do we understand? Well, we understand quite simply, isn't there? There's an expectation that the word of God would be read publicly. The word of God would be read publicly. You know, you actually think, that's what Paul wrote to Timothy, didn't he? You know, carry on the public reading of the word of God. Uh, And many churches uh, do that today. I know we read it before we preach, but many churches have a part where they just read the Word of God as an act of worship in and of itself, to read a part and to try and read it properly and clearly and accurately because it's an act of worship to do that. And obviously this is what is going to happen in the first century. Read aloud the words of these prophecies. If you read it, there's a blessing. But not only that, there's a blessing for those who will hear it and keep it so keep the words in mind the truth about Jesus Christ keep it in your minds and live your lives in accordance with the truth what you have been taught the things that you hear are to be in your mind not just as so you can argue about different points but they're to be in your mind so they might impact your life and you will live your life accordingly with that. So that is, our, that is the goal of this book for you and I, that we might listen and then we might keep. So we might understand the truth. Now it's very interesting, I found this interesting, see if you do. At the end of the book, there's the blessing, almost the same. Look at verse 7 of chapter 22, if you could. In verse 7, chapter 22... It's almost the same, isn't it? And behold, I am coming soon. The words of the Lord Jesus, these are. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's towards the end. And I'm kind of assuming that the Lord Jesus Christ is assuming that they've already been read and they've already been heard. And so what is the main point now? To keep them. You know, what is the application for us after tonight, after all these times, when we, in future weeks, we go through this book to understand it, yes, but to keep them in our minds so that might change how we, li- or how we think and thus how we live. Because the time is near. The next great era in God's redemptive history is near. Jesus Christ is coming. 
and you sometimes hear uh, people say, you know, that was preached a lot in the olden days, which must have been quite olden because that's before me. Okay, and um, maybe some of you remember that, and it's not so much now. And I think, by and large, that's probably true. Probably true, it would seem. But you know, as we look through Scripture, it was a constant theme. A constant theme. I've, I've edited my notes because we'll be here for too long otherwise. You know, how, how the, 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 the writers of the New Testament, that was in virtually nearly all their letters, saying to the people, you know, to keep going, keep going, because the time is near. Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, James, for example, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is near. You know, we, we can live life, and I fall into this, and maybe you do as well. You know, we live day to day, week to week, month to month, make plans, and the, the Lord hasn't come yet. He hasn't come yet. And we're living. But scriptures will think, you know, brings before us his return is imminent. It could happen at any time. It's not immediate. It's not said it's going to be immediately happen. We don't know the time. But it could happen at any time. Since his ascension, you know, there's really uh, been any time when it could happen. Nothing else needed to happen, in my opinion, as I read scripture. So there is this blessing that comes from Christ is given to you and to me that we must read, we must listen, and we must keep these things in our mind to understand it, to really take it to heart that Jesus Christ is coming again and to live our lives in the light of that, the blessing. So what happens then is John just praises the Lord Jesus as a result. You know, that truth... That truth impacts him. We see that in this next section, verses 4 to self. John identifies himself as the writer, as we see, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Interesting. It's uh, this area known as Proconsular Asia. And there actually were more than seven churches, so there seems to be some significance in this number. Okay, uh, You can debate that over coffee or tea, I'll let you do that. I'm, I'm away, actually, I've got, I'm preaching somewhere else, so I'm not avoiding hard questions afterwards, okay? I've just got to go somewhere else. So if you see me going out the door, it's not because I don't have any difficult questions. Um, I do have to go somewhere else. But it, it seems that, you know, so there's these seven churches, and he says, grace and peace to you. That's what we need, isn't it? Grace to face the difficulties in life as we experience them and to grow in Christ likeness. You and I need to know the grace of God in our individual lives. That is what we need to be strengthened and to cope. He says grace and he says peace. Not the absence of trouble, but to be settled and rest in God during times of trouble. So those two blessings grace to you. And peace to you. And he's saying that for those churches there. And by implication and application to us as well. So he's not saying... um, Some of those churches are experiencing big trouble, of course. And difficulties. But that's what we need, friends, don't we? We need grace and peace. We need the grace of God. We need to know the peace of God in our lives, in our situations, whatever God takes us through. That we might live godly lives in this present age that we might increase in Christ-likeness. And then he says, well, where does grace and peace come from? 
Where does it come from? And we see this three that it comes from. It comes from God, it comes from the Trinity. And there's a description of the Father from him who is and who was and who is to come. It's emphasised in the eternality of God the Father. The one who is outside of time, the one who is unchanging, the one who is self-sufficient and self-existent. You know, the description who is and who was and who is to come could apply to any person of the Godhead, but here it's applied to the Father. And, as we read on in verse 4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now I'll submit to you that is the Holy Spirit. It's a description of the Holy Spirit, or a name for the Holy Spirit. The number seven, uh, as we'll think, denotes perfection, fullness, completion. It doesn't say there's seven Holy Spirits, but it does refer to the complete ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 11, no need to do that. Uh, I'm not saying don't. But if you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 11, you would read there about the Holy Spirit described as seven spirits who rest on the branch of Jehovah, i.e. the person of Christ. Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 2 he is the spirit of the Lord he is the spirit of wisdom he is the spirit of understanding the spirit of counsel the spirit of might the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord so Isaiah brings this, the seven spirits I think you know this term we've got God the Father later on we'll see and just in a second God the Son it really does make sense to me that this is a term used concerning the Holy Spirit and then in verse 5 and John leaves him till last is not God the Father Son and Holy Spirit but God Father Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ and maybe John leaves him last in this description of the three persons of the Trinity because he is going to expand in praise to the Lord Jesus Christ he brings before three descriptions of him three descriptions of our Lord Jesus Christ that he is the faithful witness he is the true prophet. You know, everything that he says is true. Whatever comes from him is true. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ did say, remember the verse well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So he is the faithful witness. He has witnessed, he has given to John this testimony of himself, and he is faithful in that. To witness to everything concerning himself, leaving nothing out that he desires uh, for us to know. He is also our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn of the dead. Not the first to rise from the dead, but the first in rank and position. The firstborn means he is first in rank and position above all. You know, Colossians says he is the firstborn of all creation. He will be the firstborn among many brethren, the scriptures say to us. And so we think, and John brings before us, the position and the rank of our Lord Jesus Christ. He truly is our priest. Whoever lives to intercede for us, he's interceding now. And we think of him in that way. And then John also brings before us, he is the ruler of kings on earth. You know, one day, we've sung it already tonight, one day he will be seen. He will be seen. By all in this world, Jesus Christ will be seen as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There will come a day where every knee will have to bow and every tongue will have to confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord. We do that um, in a salvific way now, because we've confessed that we confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our Saviour. But there will be a day, and everyone one day will see the Lord Jesus Christ and have to confess that what Scripture says about him is absolutely true. The rejection of Christ is wrong and it is damning. The ruler of kings on earth. He is the one who puts authority, delegates authority to those who are in authority. Whoever gets put into the position of prime minister in this country tomorrow, whoever that is, has been placed there because God has placed them there. And that is a delegated authority which you'll be accountable for. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Whether they recognise it or whether they don't recognise it is immaterial with regard to that statement. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus Christ. Truly the great prophet, the great priest and the great king. And so John thinks the blessings of grace and peace come from the Godhead. However, the thought of the Lord Jesus Christ really just takes John up. And it causes John, as he thinks of Christ in this majesty, in his glories, of his coming again into earth, causes John, the one who you know, loves the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who described himself in the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, to just burst out in praise. And that is what we see, don't we? That is what we see as we come into the second half of verse 5. To him who loves us. Now the authorised version has to him who loved us. It's kind of interesting, past tense, it focuses perhaps on the cross. And of course the cross is the great manifestation of God's love. That Christ died for us upon the cross. The very one who was going to unroll the title deeds of this earth, the very one who for all things were created, is the one who died on the cross for you and I. And that thought caused John always, as it seems, to, to well up and praise him. To him who loves us. John was amazed constantly. He's an old man now. But he was amazed constantly at the love of God. And friends, I trust you are as an individual as well. That Jesus Christ loved you. Loves you. Even before the very foundation of this world. And Christ was crucified before the foundation of this world in the mind of God. And he came and demonstrated his great love for us by taking the punishment for our sin upon the cross. That we might have the righteousness of God in him. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Amazing, isn't it? You might be in families and the relationships are not too good, I don't know. I'm not looking at anyone in particular, right? Um, but, you know, brothers sometimes don't get on, whatever. But he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He loves us. And that love has been demonstrated in a sacrificial, selfless and in a steadfast way. John was taken up by that. 
The very one who is coming is the one who has loved us, laid down his life for us, the one who loved us first. He is the one, John says, as we carry on, has freed us from our sins by his blood. And the word freed us has the idea, doesn't it, of being released. We have been released from our sins. You know, what, there was a time when all we could do was sin in different manifestations. It might have seemed right to the world, but that really in the sight of God it was sin. But he has freed us from that. He has freed us from the very penalty of our sins through his death upon the cross. By the sending of the Holy Spirit into, into this world and thus into us when we accept Christ. We have the power enabling that we don't have to live to sin. We're no longer slaves of sin, we're slaves of righteousness. And John is taken up, if it wasn't for Christ, none of this. If it wasn't for Christ, none of this. He has freed us from our sins. How? By his blood. Every blessing that you have and I have has been secured for us through the death of Christ upon the cross. You know, as we go through this book of Revelation, we will ever see, you know, we will praise the Lamb that was slain. We, we read that. Uh, and we wouldn't have to think, well, why was he slain? I've no idea. Well, people, no, we will know why he was slain. We will know why he was slain. It's for our sin. And why we are there, because of him. And glory and praise be to him. He has freed us from our sin. We are spared. Uh, John has seen the lake of fire. He's had it described to him, hasn't he? He's had the second death in the lake of fire described. Jesus Christ has spared us from that. He's made us a kingdom. You know, Colossians says we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness, or the domain of darkness, pardon me, to the kingdom of God's Son. So we are now in a kingdom. We enjoy his rule in our life. He rules in our life. There's that spiritual kingdom. One day on this earth there will be a physical kingdom where Christ will reign and we will be a part of that. He has made us, as we read there, priests to God. You know, everyone now can, can approach God. You know, we're not just, it's not just for one group of people amongst us. We are all priests if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're acceptable to approach God because of what he has done. And you'll bring those things together about a kingdom and priests. We see something as well for the future. We see something for the future as well. You know, Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, said this. You'll remember this. Chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure, present, if we endure, we will, we will also reign with him. Future. If we endure, we will reign with him. And so there's a future element to that statement, is there? You know, endure, persevere, keep going on. Because what is held out for the believer is one day we will reign with him. And so when we get to Revelation 20, we see a sort of confirmation of that. Verse 6 of Revelation 20. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection... Over such the second death has no power. But here, here we go. But they will be priests of God 
and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the idea of priesthood and kingships comes together in that reign of Christ for a thousand years is brought before us. And John, if you like, is given a picture of that here to us as well. We are priests to God. And so what is the result of this praise? For Jesus Christ, the one who loves us, the one who frees us, the one who has made us priests, the one who has made us kings, glory and dominion belong, belong to him forever. All glory be to Christ. And that's a packed doxology, isn't it? It's a packed, you know, we could expand that a lot more as John is just taken up in praise for the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does he finish our section tonight? So how do I finish our section tonight? Well, here we go. Behold. That's what John draws our attention to. It's draw, meant to arrest us, to stop us. In our tracks and consider. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. You know, it seems to... Um, be you know a development uh, from the book of Daniel chapter 7 it's interesting the book of Revelation has no quotations from the Old Testament but lots of allusions to the Old Testament there's no direct quotations from the Old Testament in it but many allusions and here he is coming with the clouds and that is a vision that Daniel saw and he saw the, the son of man coming with the clouds and there was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom an everlasting dominion that will not pass away so it seems uh, you know that's what he's that's what going to happen and John said you know every eye not just a few but every eye had returned to earth will not be private but it will be public now this doesn't describe as what I would call the rapture when the believer is caught up to be with him first Thessalonians 4 but every eye but you'll notice there is a mention for one group of people there's a mention for one group Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Those who pierced him. Well, that was the nation of Israel, wasn't it? And the representatives of him. He came to his own and his own received him not. But there will come a time when they will look, Zechariah 12 says, on him whom they pierced. And they will realise they were wrong. Terribly wrong. You remember what the nation said to Pilate, or representatives said? His blood be on us and on our children. His blood be on us and our children. But they will be confronted with the one they pierced and will understand that they are wrong. All the tribes of the earth, all the tribes will wail on account of him. You know, they're going to mourn. It's not a mourning of repentance, I don't think. Chapter 9.21 tells us that. The nations mourn over their doom. Their rejection of Christ. The rejection of Christ. And so the great promise is confirmed by the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 8. 
you know, some people, you know, and I, I wouldn't be dogmatic, who is the speaker in verse 8? You know, because John says, you know, every eye is going to see him, uh, the tribes on earth will wail. Well, who is the speaker in verse 8 who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty? Who is the speaker? Well, if you've got an authorised version or New King James, the words are in red, so you think that might give an indication. Uh, but of course, that's not authoritative. But I do think it is probably the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is omniscient. Alpha and Omega, the letters of the Greek alphabet. He has all knowledge. We might say from A to Z, he knows everything. All knowledge is resident in him. He is the complete revelation of God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and was and is to come. His eternality, his omnipresence, if you like. So we had his omniscience, his omnipresence, and he is the Almighty, he is the all-powerful one. You know, nothing can thwart what is written in this book concerning the future. We don't have to think, well, that's what God says, but will that happen? Of course it will happen. As much as all the prophecies concerning his first coming came to be exactly as God said, exactly at that right time, so it will be with regard to his second coming as well. Jesus Christ is the great theme and he should be the great object of praise. I want to conclude tonight just by borrowing from a man called Harry Einside. And I've edited it down. You'll be pleased to hear I've edited his quote. But he summarises it like this. Genesis shows us blessing lost through sin. Revelation shows us blessing through Christ's sacrifice. Genesis, we see the first man and his wife set over all God's creation. Revelation, we see the second man and his bride ruling over a redeemed world. Genesis, we are told of the first sacrificial lamb. Revelation, the lamb once slain is in the midst of the throne. Genesis, we learn of the beginning of sin when, serpent, when the serpent entered the garden. Revelation, the serpent is cast into the lake of fire. Genesis, we see the rise of Babel or Babylon. Revelation, we see its doom. Genesis, we see how sorrow, death, pain and tears come in. Revelation, we see God wiping away all tears and welcoming his redeemed into a home where sin, death, pain and sorrow never come. The book of beginning to the book of end. God's great plan accomplished through Jesus Christ. Amen. May God bless his word. May our hearts be cheered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Help us, Lord, not just to be informed, but that our hearts and thus our wills might be moved as we think great thoughts we trust concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to just live our lives in the great truth. Jesus Christ is coming. We ask that uh, we give thanks, Lord, for the time of fellowship and for this food and drink and all that's going to take place. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.